if, if we could, we'd tell them everything that we have, along with everybody else. But one of the, wait a sec, just let me finish answering the question, please. Have you ever seen the movie Scream? But here's the problem. Did you know it was based on a true story? We've got five bodies. We don't have a suspect that's in custody. This is it. Uh, we're developing information as quickly as we can, working around the clock. The year after Tiffany Sessions disappeared without a trace, college students in Gainesville, Florida, were found murdered, one after another, after another, after another. This case is, is very important to us to try to find a killer or killers as quickly as possible. I think this was Gainesville's darkest chapter. And even when it seemed like it was over, it wasn't. As a member of the law enforcement community, what did it feel like? Deja vu. I mean, you got the student homicides, you got Tiffany missing, you're going, not again. I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves. Sunday evening, I was watching the 6 o'clock news, and I saw where the Gainesville police had responded to the Williamsburg apartments and found the first two students murdered in their apartment. LeGrand Hewitt was a detective at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office when the Gainesville Ripper came to town. They happened the week before school started, didn't they? The University of Florida? Yes, ma'am, they did. They happened during the last week of August of 1990. The murder started on a Friday, in the early hours of the morning, and like Detective Hewitt said, the first two victims were found at the Williamsburg Apartments, which were about five minutes from where Tiffany Sessions had disappeared the year before. University of Florida freshman Christina Powell, who was 17, and Sonia Larson, who was 18, had been brutally murdered in their apartment. One of the girls was raped and disfigured, and they were both stabbed to death and posed in sexually explicit positions before the killer got something to eat and left their apartment. The teenagers weren't found until Sunday, but after that, the news spread pretty fast. That was just a murder at that time, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, Sunday night, I was called and asked to respond to the scene of Krista Hoyt, which was in the county's jurisdiction, the sheriff's office jurisdiction. The day after he'd killed Christina and Sonia, the killer broke into 18-year-old Krista Hoyt's apartment, less than two miles from the first scene. He waited for her to come home, and as soon as Krista walked in, he attacked her from behind and choked her. He raped her, stabbed her to death, and then he decapitated her and put her head on a shelf, facing her body, which was also posed. So I responded to that scene, and that's where law enforcement started tying together these two scenes. Going through the Crystal Hoyt crime scene, it was a, a very shocking, nothing like I had ever experienced before, and I don't know of anyone that was on the scene that had experienced anything quite like that. Krista was a student at Santa Fe Community College in Gainesville, but she also worked at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. So the detectives on this case were called to the apartment of one of their own. Never seen a crime scene like that where the body had been dismembered and disemboweled and mutilated like Krista's was. And um, as I was 
doing the investigation, working with the investigation that morning, I wondered if we were going to have more and concerned where we're going to have more. Why yes. were you thinking that? I don't know. Uh, to this day, I don't know why I was thinking, would there be more? I just had this eerie feeling that whoever was doing this wasn't quite done yet. Detective Hewitt was right. While the investigators were working the crime scene at Krista's apartment, the killer had been just a few miles down the road murdering two more UF students. But no one would find that out until the next day. It was uh, Tuesday morning. We were in our roll call at the sheriff's office and talking about Krista, what we're going to do that day, getting our assignments, those kind of things. And word came in that they had found two more bodies in Gatorwood. This morning at 8.30, we responded uh, to Gatorwood Apartments, uh, refer reference of death investigation. Tracy Paulus had been raped and stabbed to death, and her roommate, Manny Taboda, was stabbed 31 times. The 23-year-olds were the latest victims, bringing the total to five college students who had been murdered in Gainesville over a weekend. Four of the five victims had been petite brunette females, but when it started to leak out that a 200-pound former football player had also been killed, the fear that the next victim could be anyone spread all over town. The community was on edge. Parents were coming to Gainesville to pick up their children. The University of President closed the university for a week, stopped classes. When they found a third crime scene, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement was called in to assist, and we were just saturated with law enforcement. We went to a, what they call an AB shift. Nobody had off. Nobody was off for months. Months! Nobody had a day off. You either worked six in the morning to six at night or six at night to six in the morning, seven days a week with a contingency of you know, 30 or 40 FHP troopers patrolling, and um, it was just a saturation of law enforcement in Gainesville for several months. We had law enforcement coming from all areas of the state, and I believe some outside the state. This is Linda Brown. She worked at the sheriff's office when all of this was happening, and she's the records bureau chief there now. If anyone was seen anywhere, they were stopped. If they looked if the least bit out of place or if it was a late hour, we didn't know who we were looking for. So everyone was stopped. A piece of paper was written on every one of those stops, and they would sit in the shrubs and look for unusual behavior and, again, record every action that they saw that might be suspicious or unusual. Though many parents pulled their kids out of school and brought them home, a lot of students stayed in Gainesville. After all, the murder seemed to have stopped. But law enforcement still didn't know who was responsible, and no one knew if or when there might be more. And because of that, Linda told me the fear in that town was palpable. People were having slumber parties everywhere because they knew it was in apartments. They knew people were asleep and these, this person, whoever was doing this and could have been a group, were breaking into apartments and, and murdering these students. They didn't want to sleep alone? Not at all. 
And no. People were just coming to one apartment. Young men sleep. and women were gathering at a single apartment. Multiple men and women were gathering at a single apartment and having sleepovers to try to be safe. Yeah, but you don't you don't know if he's finished. No. And you don't know who it is? Well, and there was speculation that it was more than one individual because Manny, how could one individual kill somebody of that size? We would get numerous calls from other parents to go check on the well-being of their children. And deputies and law enforcement officers would go knock on the door. And they were met at the door with different types of weapons there to defend themselves. There was all kinds of rumors floating around that this perpetrator was getting in on the rouge of being a law enforcement officer, on the rouge of being a maintenance man, on the rouge of being anything, delivery person. So nobody was trusted when they went to the door and knocked on it, you know, to, to do a well-being check. And a lot of officers were met with people with different types of weapons, baseball bats, clubs, guns, knives, you know, as they opened the door. So there was a, a feeling of hysteria in the community and unsafe. The media frenzy that came to Gainesville, it was just unprecedented. It was unbelievable. I mean, satellite trucks lined Archer Road. And then when we decided that it would be housed at the Gainesville Police Department, satellite trucks just circled that area. Because of the size and scope of this investigation and the realization that this was way bigger than what any single agency could handle, the Gainesville Police Department and the Alachua County Sheriff's Office came together with federal law enforcement and they created a student murder task force. Technically, it was called the Gainesville Homicide Task Force, but its sole purpose was to find the man who had been dubbed the Gainesville Ripper. What was your role through the investigation? I was an investigator, so we had thousands of leads coming in. People would call in anybody and everybody as a potential suspect if they had ever done anything that was not quite right. So those leads were, were collected by a bank of people that answered the phone and took those leads. I was one of the investigators that you were handed leads and say, go out and check this person, go out and check that person, go follow up on this lead, that lead. Okay, this piece right here is one of the things that makes this case different from the others we've talked about so far, and it's a really important detail. They had a DNA profile of the Ripper to work off of, so the task force was able to use the known blood type to cross people off its very long list of possible persons of interest. We were looking for a B-secretor blood. And so we would go to our suspect that had been called in and ask them if there was some way they could tell us what their blood type was that we could verify. If there wasn't, would you go with us and give us a blood sample? I mean, there wasn't no swabbing back then. So we needed a blood sample. We needed an actual tube of blood. If you had a blood that was B, then the lab would take your blood and find out if you were a secretor. They do that process of elimination. And um, there was many, many people on that list, <laughs> hundreds of people that we had to eliminate. And one of those people was Paul Rolls. 
When he was first released from prison, Paul Rolls had had to register as a sex offender, and because of the nature of the student murders, he was one of the hundreds pulled in to give a DNA sample and be interviewed by the task force within the first couple of weeks. Now, I don't know what Paul's blood type was or whether his blood type played any part in his being brought in. What I do know is that he gave his prints, blood, and pubic hair to the task force, and I was also able to read some notes from his task force interview. As it turns out, Paul had started a new job at a local pizza hut the exact same day as the first murders, and because of his work schedule, it seemed impossible he could be the one responsible for the weekend killing spree. The task force interviewed his supervisors at both Pizza Hut and Crom Equipment Rentals, and they each said his behavior had been normal and he'd had perfect attendance, as he usually did, during the murders. The task force also brought in Paul's wife, Kathy Rolls, to be interviewed. Kathy also told the task force that Paul couldn't have been involved in the student murders because of the times they had happened. And even though Paul would be cleared, he was not the one behind these slayings. It's what Kathy told Paul's parole officer just a couple weeks after her task force interview that still gives me chills. In the log of Paul's probation file, it says that even though Kathy didn't believe Paul had anything to do with the student murders, she told his parole officer that she, quote, believes the pressures that led to the occurrence before are there again now. Kathy Rolls was telling law enforcement that whatever urges her husband had had 18 years before that led to murdering and trying to rape his neighbor were back. And she was right. The Gainesville Homicide Task Force today named Danny Harold Rawling, 37 years old, as a prime suspect in the homicide uh, last year in August of five individuals in Gainesville. Nine months after the student murders, the task force finally named their suspect. Mr. Rowling has been uh, looked at and investigated by the task force for about six months now. Years later, Danny Rowling would be put to death for these killings, and it turned out he was also responsible for three other murders in Louisiana. I'm going to do a little bonus episode with Detective Sergeant LeGrand Hewitt on how the task force solved the student murders later this season. And I promise you, I didn't just throw in an unrelated story that Paul had nothing to do with here. I think it's really important to get a feel for what was going on in Gainesville back then, but also the details from this case are going to be crucial to our cases later on. So back to 1991, when Danny Rawling was first named a prime suspect. Initially, there was a sigh of relief. Law enforcement seemed pretty confident they had their guy and the nightmare was over. But then, more murdered college students were found. From that point on, a lot of people were very careful and cautious, and you didn't forget any time real soon. I don't remember how long it was after the student murders that the carpet-killing murder took place. That's Linda from the Alachua County Sheriff's Office again, and the carpet killing she's talking about was just days after the task force had named its prime suspect. And that suspect, by the way, was already behind bars. So when two more University of Florida students were found dead in their apartment, everyone stopped and wondered whether it was possible these murders could be connected to any of the other cases. Nobody knew what happened, so it was, is this happening again? Is this another copycat, or what is this? 
22-year-old Carla McKishney and 20-year-old Eleanor Grace had been strangled. They were killed in their Casablanca West apartment, which was right next to Casablanca East, where Tiffany Sessions lived and was last seen. Carla and Eleanor brought the town's total to seven murdered college students in less than a year, plus Tiffany, who had still not been seen or heard from. I remember I was supposed to go out on a Thursday night and meet some friends, and I called and canceled and said, no, I'm not going. I don't know what this killer is, and I'm not coming home at midnight or whenever and walking in the dark and being the next victim. Not going to happen. A guy named Alan Davis would be identified as the carpet killer. He had been in Carla and Eleanor's townhouse to clean their carpets and killed them instead. When I was researching this case, I found this in an article from the South Florida Sun Sentinel describing how the town was functioning after these latest slayings. It said, quote, Students and university officials said the limit has been reached, that one more murder would be certain to empty the town. They had no idea what was coming. In April of 1991, about seven months after he'd been brought in by the Student Murder Task Force, Paul had another run-in with local law enforcement. This time, they found him prowling behind a building that backs up to a neighborhood. That building is across the street from a park right off Williston Road. In the last episode, I told you to remember Williston, right? It was part of Tiffany Sessions' walking route. Well, I also want you to remember this park off of Williston, where Paul was caught most likely before or after a Peeping Tom session. It's called Bivens Arm Nature Park. Okay, I'm going to read you some of the suspicious incident report from this prowling event. One of the officers there that night wrote in his report, quote, I observed a Ford Bronco parked in a wooded area. While walking to the building, we observed a white male walk several steps away from us behind a tree and put something down in the bushes. I checked the wooded area and found a pair of gloves and a shop towel, which were damp. The suspect was sweating and appeared to be nervous. So Paul then told the officers his name and they read him a Miranda warning. Then the officer wrote, quote, Rolls was asked why he put the gloves in the bushes. After denying owning the gloves and rag, he told us he didn't think it would look good if we found him with those items. The suspect, Rolls, stated he was on probation for homicide and had served 14 years in prison. Suspect was released. Gloves and rag was submitted into evidence. Contact with Rolls' parole officer will be done. Two weeks after that, Paul's parole supervisor said Paul was doing, quote, extremely well and had had no problems. The supervisor went as far as recommending they cut down on how frequently Paul should have to check in because of his reporting habits, stable employment, and lack of arrest history. I don't want to put all the blame on law enforcement here because it's clear that no one in this story ever realized they were dealing with a sociopath. But this is something a lot of people point back to now, this prowling incident next to the park. Because less than a year after it happened, another college student would go missing, this time from Bivens Arm Nature Park. At this time, we have no suspects in the case. We do not have a motive. On March 15, 1992, 21-year-old Santa Fe Community College junior Elizabeth Foster told her roommate she was going to Bivens Arm Nature Park to read. She left her driver's license and credit cards in her room, and she never came home. Just like the Sessions, Beth's parents, who lived in New Jersey, immediately made their way to Gainesville, and local law enforcement moved into a familiar investigation. When she initially went missing, what was the, the climate like? You always knew the student murders that happened. Tiffany was missing. You had the carpet killer. 
another student missing. Yeah, there was a lot of tension in, in the town. It got a lot of publicity. You probably recognize that voice from the last episode. It's Detective Sergeant Kenny Mack from the Latchwood County Sheriff's Office. He worked on both Tiffany and Beth's cases. You knew in the back of your mind you had to, you had to do something. But what at the time, you know, we, all we could do was follow the leads. As a member of the law enforcement community, what did it feel like? Deja vu. Because you don't understand, and a lot of civilian people outside of law enforcement don't understand the pressure that were put on by those cases. I mean, it was, it was just about pure hell for the people working them. There's always a, a pressure, do something, do something now, and it better be right. It was just a tremendous pressure with those cases. According to detectives, timesheets showed that Paul Rolls did not work the day Beth Foster disappeared. But no one really thought anything of that. Because who would have seen a connection between this seemingly normal, quiet family man who managed a pizza hut and a missing college girl? Sure, he told his co-workers that the reason he loved working at Pizza Hut was because he got to deliver pizzas to hot girls. But most people probably didn't even know he was a convicted murderer or a sex offender. In fact, when asked in a job interview why he had a felony on his record, Paul lied and told the interviewer he had stabbed his dad to death after years of abuse. A really weird lie, but it paid off in times like this where there was another missing college student and the people around Paul Rolls had no idea police should maybe look at him. Anyway, three days after Beth had gone missing, law enforcement found her car. It was in the parking lot of a place called the Brown Derby, a restaurant off Williston Road not far from Biven's Arm. The door was unlocked, there were no signs of a struggle, and Beth Foster was nowhere to be seen. She had just disappeared, and once again, there were no clues left behind for law enforcement. Here's Linda Brown from the Sheriff's Office. By the time Beth Foster happened, it was a college student missing. Because of the experience, I think it was taken very seriously. I think the gut reaction was probably stronger than when it happened to Tiffany because we had all that experience of yeah. murders and young people, and, and we just knew how vulnerable our community is. With Tiffany, you were getting tips from all over yeah. the world. We think we saw her on a yacht in the Bahamas, for heaven's sakes, was one of the tips. And, and just tips from all over the world, and, and especially the country, saying, well, we think we saw her, we think we saw her. So there was always that adding to the speculation that she might have just been tired of it all and run away. But with the Beth Foster case, there wasn't any of that. It was what happened to her, where is she? Beth had been missing for 11 days when a park ranger stumbled across a body buried in a shallow grave off Williston Road. The woman was nude, had been beaten to death, and was left in the woods across the street from the Brown Derby. Since Gainesville had had two daughters go missing from Williston Road, the sheriff's office called the sessions to specify that this was a partially decomposed body that had been found, not just bones. So this one couldn't be Tiffany. Through the use of dental records, the body has been positively identified as that of Elizabeth Helen Foster, age 21. Beth Foster was the eighth college student to be murdered in little old Gainesville in less than two years, and the town and law enforcement had had it. Since uh, August 1990, we've had now eight co-eds that have been murdered. Another one is missing. 
What's going on in Alachua County? I don't think anything's going on in the Gainesville, Alachua County area that's any different than any other part of the country. Even though police weren't saying so publicly, a lot of people were wondering whether Beth's case could be connected to any of the others, and some were even wondering whether there were other bodies in the same woods in which Beth had been found. In fact, Hillary Sessions drove up from Tampa and then showed up at the press conference on finding Beth's body to ask some questions of her own. I'm here to see if there's any possibility that Tiffany Okay, I know that clip was really hard to understand, but what Hillary said is, quote, I'm here to see if there's any possibility that Tiffany might also be in that same location. We have no evidence right now, uh, uh, Hillary, to uh, connect this particular investigation with the disappearance of Tiffany. However, we're not ruling it out either. When you looked at the two of them, they looked very similar. I looked at that and I said, you know, this is awfully close to Tiffany's apartment. It's only like a mile and a half away, the way the crow flies. I said, this is really, this is too close for comfort. But how, I mean, it just blows my mind that in 1992, you were at that press conference saying, can these be connected? Yeah. Did you believe that they were? Yeah, I did. Intuition, a feeling? Yep, yep, yep. And though officials would never publicly confirm it, a lot of people in the law enforcement community had their own suspicions that Hillary might be right. Here's Detective Sergeant Kenny Mack. Was there a feeling with Beth that it was familiar or that it could be connected to anything that had happened in the community before? Yes. I mean, young, student, missing, murdered. I mean, just all, you know, it all connected. You had to look at it like that. If you didn't, you wouldn't be doing your job. So did you guys think that whatever had happened to we them? Knew, we knew it wasn't the student murders, but you had Beth on one end and, and this one on the other. You know, it was this same person in this area doing the same thing this many years apart. Answer is, could be very possible, mm. more than likely. So then did you investigate in the same type fashion? Yes, but not as broad as Tiffany. I mean, there were, weren't searches done with 150, 200 people involved in it. But yeah, we treated it the same way. We just started the investigation and ran backgrounds and interviewed friends and any witnesses that may have had anything to do with it. And eventually it went cold. You didn't have all of the physical evidence like a fingerprint or or DNA or, or anything like that. Nobody saw her fighting with anybody. She got along with everybody. Her boyfriend was interviewed extensively, her roommates. That was just a, one of those, it's dead end. Did you ever think Beth's case would get solved? <sighs> no. It brought back Tiffany's case in our mind. Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell was the spokesperson for the Gainesville Police Department back then, and she told me she used to keep her own running list of Gainesville's missing or murdered women. It was another, you know, kind of an, oh my God, what's happening? Why us? Why this community? And what's going on? The obvious thought was, are they connected? And certainly that had to be looked at because Tiffany, Beth, and Tracy, Krista, Sonia, and Christina all were in the, you know, the young late teens to 
to mid-twenties and all white females, so it was just one of those jarring, hello, we've got dots, how do we connect them? You know, Tiffany went for a walk and, and vanished, and the people in their apartment complexes, young college students with their whole lives ahead of them, and all of them promising futures, really, just murdered for no reason. And then with Beth Foster, she's a college student studying in a nice, quiet, wooded area. She should be perfectly safe, and she's not. And so Gainesville had reinforcement that the world is not what we thought it was, and it's not that quiet little community town that we had all grown to appreciate and not worry about locking your doors and not worry about who you're walking next to or talking to. It would take decades before a real connection was made between these victims, Tiffany and Beth. Their cases moved to the back burner and considered unsolvable. But in the meantime, another victim was going to survive. She would take care of the problem for good. And for the first time, you can hear her tell her own story. It's on the next episode of Shallow Graves. on and that's when they were arguing about it and then we ended up just saying forget it done and then out of the blue the girl upstairs goes missing i just remember i had an eerie feeling i was laying in bed i was probably half asleep so i just happened to like turn over and look towards the doorway and i saw a tall man standing there that's when he ran up to me and told me not to move or say anything, and he had a knife to my throat. Make sure to subscribe to Shallow Graves, and also let me know what you think. You can call me. I have a voicemail box set up where you can leave me any and all thoughts or questions about the podcast, and I might play your message and talk about it later this season. The number is 352-559-5007. You can also reach me through my Instagram or Facebook page under Haley Holloway or shoot me an email at shallowgravespodcast at gmail.com. I want to say a huge thank you to Jessica McGill for her true crime podcast expertise. Music for this podcast is by Mark at Lineout Studio and music editing and audio restoration is by Aston Lopez.